Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. What can international comparisons teach us about Trump, COVID-19, the Democrats, and our history? In this episode, political experts from the United States, United Kingdom, and Germany will offer a global perspective on the 2020 election. Today's guest host is Toby Buckle. He's a British-born political activist, organizer, and fundraiser who has spent the last 10 years working in the United States. Toby also hosts the Political Philosophy Podcast. This is a weekly specialist discussion show featuring interviews with the world's leading political philosophers, public commentators, activists, and politicians. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with journalist Ian Dunt, Roosevelt political science professor David Ferris, and Einstein Forum Director Susan Neiman on what we can learn from other countries. And remember, as Election Day rapidly approaches, make sure you have a plan to vote. Your voice matters and you have the opportunity to make change happen this November. everyone and welcome to this event in Roosevelt University's series, The American Dream Revisited, which today is brought to you in collaboration with the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, the host of the Political Philosophy Podcast, and I'll be moderating this panel, which is the first of two events under the banner, The US Election in a Global Context. In this first part, What can international comparisons teach us about Trump, COVID-19, the Democrats, and our history? So, obviously, the American election has been a huge topic, but it can also seem overwhelming and sometimes, frankly, a little baffling. I study this stuff all the time, and I find myself regularly baffled. So, during this live virtual discussion... Um, Political experts from the United States, United Kingdom and Germany will offer a global perspective to hopefully shed some light on what's happening. The panel will explore what we can learn from other countries about opposition parties, stolen elections and responses to the crisis that we're all in. Note to the audience that we will be taking uh, questions at the end, which I think is kind of cool and one of the things I'm excited for in this discussion. So if you're watching in YouTube or Facebook, if you just make a comment as you normally would under the YouTube video or a Facebook comment, that should pull through to the program I'm on. So I can take those questions and there's no sort of timing. So just put the questions in as you're watching. And at the end of the discussion, I will get to as many as I can of them. So. Let me introduce the panel. Joining me today, uh, first of all, is Susan Nyman, director of the Einstein Forum. Susan was born in Atlanta, Georgia, 
and has studied philosophy at Harvard and Berlin and was professor of philosophy at Yale and Tel Aviv University. She's the author of Slow Fire, Jewish Notes from Berlin, The Unity of Reason, Evil in Modern Thought, Moral Clarity, Why Grow Up, and most recently and possibly most relevantly to this discussion, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. Uh, welcome, Susan. Glad to be here. Also joining me from the UK, is Ian Dunt. Ian's a London-based journalist. He edits the website politics.co.uk. He does wonderful live Twitter feeds of what's going on with whatever nonsense is going on in the Commons at the time. He's a prolific media commentator appearing in stuff like The Guardian, Irish Times, Washington Post, Prospect. He's the host of the his podcasts Romaniac and the new uh, The Bunker. And he's the author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now, and more recently, How to Be a Liberal. Thanks for coming on, Ian. Thanks, mate. And finally, uh, David Farris, uh, Associate Professor of Political yes. Science at Roosevelt University, who's hosting this event. <laughs> David is the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, which I feel like both me and David have been evangelists for. He's also a contributing writer at The Week, as well as Informed Content, and he's published op-eds with BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, The New Republic, The Daily Beast, USA Today, and a bunch of others that I'm not going to run through. David, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. So one quick note to the panel before we start is in one of the discussions before we did this, the university said, um, you know, are you just going to ask questions or are you going to like give your own opinion? And I was like, I'm, I'm not sure. And they're like, because we like it when people give their own opinion. It makes it more dynamic. And I was like, Say no more. Like, I, I have the other problem. So the, the panel is forewarned that I may interject an editorial, but uh, I'll try to keep it somewhat minimal. So the topic is the American election. Let's start with that. Big picture here is that from everything we can tell from polling, Biden is currently ahead. However, I think 2016 has given a lot of people the jitters in that. A lot of people are afraid of a polling error. But in addition to that, there seems like a risk that maybe we should be taking seriously of some sort of stolen election with Trump refusing to commit, for instance, to a peaceful transfer of power. So, David, here's my first question to you, and then we can bring the panel in is we can look at past elections to get a sense of how likely a polling error is. So 538 puts it at 12%. Can we look to international comparisons to think about how seriously we should be taking the risk of an election result being subverted? Yeah, I think that we can. And I think that thinking comparatively can really help us understand the risks here. There are risks. But I think that overall the risk of this election being overtly stolen or overtly subverted is pretty low. So if you look at this in comparative perspective, countries that are on the sort of the, the glide path to authoritarianism like we are, <laughs> have generally done most of the tilting of their elections in favor of the ruling party prior to election night. Okay? It's easier that way, right? It's easier to steal an election that you've already done the hard work of stealing. So like in Viktor Orban's Hungary, for example, the, the ruling party gerrymandered the country's parliamentary districts to, to engineer an artificial majority in parliament to make it easier to win. Uh, in Poland, the president turned public television into, into kind of like an arm of the state, an arm of the, an arm of the ruling party. 
and so it's, in countries like that, I think, and I think the United States is, is probably not more than one election cycle away from, from closely resembling them, but there's no need to subvert the actual election results because it, again, the hard work of doing that and making them deeply unfair to the opposition has already been done. So similarly in the US, I think most of the work of making this election harder for Democrats to win has already been done, right? So we've got the deluge of, of Republican lawsuits seeking to make it harder to, for, to vote in the middle of a pandemic. We have the installation of a six uh, hard right justice on the Supreme Court who would presumably vote for Trump in the, I think, unlikely event that it's close and disputed. And of course, in, in the background of all of this, we use a method of electing the president in this country, the Electoral College, that has repeatedly awarded a single national office to the candidate with fewer votes, even though a majority of Americans have wanted to abolish this idiotic system for decades. So this is already a hard place for Democrats to win elections in. And so I guess what I'm saying is that U.S. elections are already subverted in a pretty meaningful way. It's something that absolutely must be addressed in the aftermath of this election if, if Biden does, in fact, win. But that all of these efforts and all of these institutional obstacles to democratic power at the moment really don't seem to be enough to overcome Joe Biden's pretty, pretty large polling lead. And I think that any effort to rig the actual election results would be very unlikely to succeed, given the very sort of diffuse nature of the U.S. electoral system and, and the ways that local officials are empowered to make their own decisions and, and create their own systems that are very difficult to hack. So there are a lot of pretty robust safeguards built into that. It's not to say that there could not be incidents or that there could not be hacking, but to hack the whole system in a way that would change the results, I think, is fairly unlikely. Um, and then there's, Susan, of course... Sorry. I see Susan wants to come in here. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to be cheered by your take on things, David. And But I, a couple of questions. I wonder what you think about the terrifying Barton Gelman Atlantic article that came out about a month ago. My sense is that forewarned is forearmed. And I happen to know that there are, that governors and attorneys general in democratic states are currently in discussion about how to prepare for possibilities, you know, from election, post-election violence to everything else. That also makes me feel safer. But I do wonder how you answer the sort of charges uh, or, or speculations that not just, not just Gelman, but also the what is it? The Transition Integrity Project was was discussing. I agree with you that that the Republicans have done everything they could to pre, uh, you know, determine the results of the election. But there are all of these other possibilities. The one thing that I found comforting in the Gelman article was the understanding that actually the Supreme Court did not decide the election in 2000. It was decided by Al Gore's hanging on to democratic norms and saying he didn't want to tear up the country, but that there were other avenues he could have chosen had he done so. And so Biden presumably is forewarned. And even if we get stuck with Barrett on the court, it's not the end game, even though I don't think either McConnell or Trump realize this. But what do you say to all of that? <laughs> sure. So I, I know the article you're talking about, uh, it was very terrifying. I think the biggest fear that came out of reading that article was the idea that Republican state legislatures in swing states like Pennsylvania and Michigan would simply appoint their own slate of electors to the Electoral College in presumed defiance of the, of the popular will in that state. And uh, I guess I'm a little bit less worried about the scenario than a lot of people are. One, because the constitutional authority for the state legislatures to do that is, is pretty disputed in the first place, because we already, they have existing electoral laws in Michigan, Pennsylvania. That uh, in, in Wisconsin too, and you have Democratic governors who'd have to sign off on that change in order to to appoint those electors. 
Now they could they could just unilaterally send the slate to Congress when when the vote is being counted on January sixth, but I, I honestly think that that's pretty that's pretty far fetched for such an open sort of subversion of the popular will. I, I think that anybody that would pull that maneuver has to really ask themselves what is it that I'm winning? You know, like what would be left of the country in, in the aftermath of, of such a sort of bald authoritarian maneuver? And I I have my doubts that even the Supreme Court would go along with Republican state legislatures just setting aside the election results and sending their own slate of electors to the Electoral College. Now, if it's really close and the, and the vote is disputed in Pennsylvania or something like that, I'll be just as worried as you are. But I, I do think overall, I think that's pretty unlikely. And it, it's but, but not why, keeping me why, up right now. <laughs> why, David, is Trump so into this? And I don't buy that Trump is some, you know, master 12-dimensional chess person. I know why Mitch McConnell wants Barrett on the court. And that's more about long-run structural stuff that you and me can go on about forever. But Trump is specifically saying that he wants her on the court for when the election ends up before the court. What? Do, what? I mean, he might be mistaken, but what does he think he's getting out of this? Does he just imagine the scenario you outlined with a very sort of close 2000-ish result? Or does he really think he's going to wholesale just like snatch this and put it in the bag? I, I mean, I, I don't know what I don't know what's going on inside the president's brain, and I'm not sure that I want to. But um, <laughs> I, I do think that the scenario that he's envisioning is one where Republican legal challenges have have shut down the voting, uh, shut down the counting of absentee balloting and mail balloting, right? And that a, you know a, the courts hold that up, and the case ultimately ends up in front of the Supreme Court. And I think in his mind, Barrett will go along with with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and the rest of the conservatives in uh, in agreeing to to shut down vote counting in a closely disputed state. And again, I'm skeptical that the justices, even these conservative justices, would go along with that because it would involve changing state election law in the middle of an election. And there's a lot of case precedent to mitigate that. It's called the Purcell principle, right? You don't you don't want to you can't change election law on the fly in the middle of an election. So it's not to say that the fear is not there, but I think as as has frequently happened, President Trump has a more expansive vision and a more expansive understanding of his authority than he actually possesses. And so he doesn't, he, you know, he can't just like squat in the White House after after the transition has happened. Like he will have to leave ultimately. And so again, all of this is really worrisome, right? It's worrisome that the, the major theme of both party conventions was that the other side is trying to steal the election. It's worrisome that there's there's hundreds of lawsuits trying to prevent people from, from voting. It's worrisome that the president of the United States openly speculates about not respecting election results. But I do think at the moment, and again, I think we're only one election cycle away from this not being true, but at the moment, I think the institutions are still strong enough to withstand that challenge from the president. Okay. Moving forward, one theme that we could relate to all of this is history, and we've debated a lot. Trump, it seems, was the one who wanted to make this issue a conversation, was he wanted to make memorials to the Confederacy, a major election issue. Now, when I, and we've had similar debates in Britain, so maybe you can get on the, in on this as well, Ian. But it seems to me there's other countries that have just gone a markedly different route in understanding their own history. I'm far from an expert on German politics, but my understanding is you don't have these sorts of conversations, at least within the political mainstream. So, Susan, What's the comparison and contrast between America and Germany here? And what, if anything, can Americans learn from the Germans to take the title of your book? 
Yeah, the differences are huge. You know, we not only don't have these kinds of discussions in Germany, there are no, I mean, what I've called Hans Wehrmacht. I mean, the idea of there being a Hans Wehrmacht statue analogous to Johnny Reb statues is, is, is really not conceivable. So, but the first thing, and, you know, swastikas are banned, Nazi paraphernalia is banned, what we have instead of monuments to the Nazis are many, many different kinds of monuments to their victims and to the few resistance heroes that there were. The most interesting and surprising thing, though, that Americans can learn from the Germans is how hard this working through history is. Germans like long, long compound words, and so they have a word for this. It's called Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, working off the past. And it's a, it's a very multi-layered process. It involves coming up with a different historical narrative. It involves uh, bringing to justice people who need to be brought to justice. It involves reparations. It involves changing the iconography uh, of the cities. And this takes place, you know, not just in schools or universities. It takes place in popular culture and so on. Uh, and no other culture has developed such a concept. So the Germans were the first to do this historically. But what's really important for us to remember is they didn't want to do it at all. So we tend, since we, Americans and Brits tend to, you know, the put a lot of symbolic value on the Nazis, that's not matched by our general knowledge of how they developed or, and certainly what happened afterwards. We think of Nazis as symbols of absolute evil or not even symbols of absolute evil, as absolute evil. And we imagine that the German nation fell on its knees the minute the war was over and begged for atonement for this horrible sin. And I think one thing that reinforces that idea is the fact that the most iconic post-war German photograph was of Willy Brandt on his knees at the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial. Most of us are old enough to remember that. What we don't know, first of all, Willy Brandt as a social democrat had to flee the country and spent the war in exile. Number two, that he was actually criticized by the opposing party, the Christian Democrats, Angela Merkel's party, for going into exile. And number three, that the majority of Germans thought it was terrible for him to kneel in in uh, atonement, even for crime. I mean, he was kneeling as the head of the country, not because he himself was implicated in any crimes at all, but people thought that was the wrong thing to do in 1970. What people actually thought, certainly in West Germany, and to some extent, but much less in East Germany, was that they were the worst victims of the war. And while I was studying this, I suddenly realized that the ways in which Germans, immediate post-war Germans talked about themselves, we lost the war, our country was dismembered, our cities are in ruins, our men are in POW camps if they were even, uh, you know, if they're alive, they were wounded. And on top of all that, the damn Yankees want to blame us for having started the war. And I suddenly realized these are the tropes of the lost cause. This is exactly how the majority of West Germans felt the first few decades after the war. So, what we can take from this is, first of all, people are going to resist 
facing their people's historical crimes. That's a natural move to make. You know, we like to see our people as heroic. If we can't possibly see them as heroic, we see them as victims. We say, well, you know, they would have been heroes, but they were victims of history. What was unique about what the Germans did is that they made a further turn and said, yeah, well, we did suffer a lot, but other people suffered worse and it was our fault. And that was a really unique thing to do. Now, it took a good, I would say, at least 50 years, depending on on how, you know, where you date exactly what. But what, what one can clearly say is that Germany is a stronger, better, and happier nation for it. And, uh, you know, so, so that needs to be a message that we can convey in these discussions about what America should do with its history and also not be discouraged by the fact that it's not only Donald Trump, of course, you know, the statues that were taken down, say, in New Orleans had to be taken down at night and with armed guards. I mean, there is a lot of resentment to this process, but if we go through it, we can come out better on the other side. So as a sort of simple, almost yes, no question, would you say that you said it was this 40, 50 year process for Germany that now they're now at the tail end of marking America on that same timeline? Are we maybe only in our first five or 10 years of that process? And we need to commit to almost an intergenerational effort against this sort of backlash. It is an intergenerational effort, precisely because these are things that seep very deeply into popular culture and popular memory. You know, it's not just a matter of learning a a different history of of the Civil War or remedying this hundred-year hole in our historical narrative that sort of jumps from the end of the Civil War to the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And says, well, you know, there was some prejudice and some racism in between, but the civil rights uh, movement took care of that. We cover that period up with the awful euphemism, Jim Crow. I'm on a minor crusade. So <laughs> stop using that. I, independently and with much less learning than you, um, and also, or even stuff like segregation, it was apartheid and a system of violent, tyrannical domination. Like, come on. Well, Brian Stevenson, one of my heroes, calls it the age of racial terror, and I oh, that, yeah, even better. That's that's what I would that's what I would use. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's that period, you know, that we need to white people at any rate need to learn more about. But it's you know, it this is stuff that gets transmitted in songs and in movies, and in the way people raise their children. So yes, it's intergenerational. First of all, I have to make two caveats. One is I don't claim that the Germans have done everything right. They haven't, okay? And we can also learn from some of their mistakes. But they have taken a historical step that we need to take. Now, to your question, you know, no two histories are exactly the same. And so it's, it's, I think it's really hard to say what a timeline would be. Obviously, the U.S. has a different history uh, than Germany does. But it's a big project. There's no question about it. And it will go through stages. When I first came to Berlin in 1982, most of the people that I gravitated towards, and those were left-leaning activists and writers and artists and stuff, they refused to read Goethe. 
for example, because they felt that in that stage of um, Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, they felt that all of German culture was contaminated. And I worry sometimes in some of the American discussion that we're moving in that direction, which the Germans have now worked themselves out of, basically, with, with a few exceptions. So it's a, it's a complicated process. Yeah, just, just to close out this section, I do want to get Ian in, who hasn't okay. talked yet. Ian, it, my impression is, with the necessary caveats that Susan made, the UK is in a similar position to the US, albeit with somewhat different historical crimes. For instance, you know, we participated in slavery, but generally, um, I don't think had it on the mainland, but that we're at the beginning of the process of recognising that, and there's still an immense amount of reaction against it in the UK. We're more on the US side of things than the German side of things. Does that? Do you think that captures where we are with the debate on these issues there? Yeah, it's broadly true. Um, we're certainly on the American side of it. Uh, the trouble that makes it complicated in Britain is that it's kind of sucked up into the broader culture war debate, which is tied up with Brexit and which is tied up with the empire at the moment. So that entire process of assessing the past through Black Lives Matter's process, but also more generally, just gets contorted into a shape which is really reflecting what people are wanting to say about current politics. So the empire is, is the chief version of this, where really there is a very, very aggressive counter response by right wing magazines, right wing newspapers and by the government to try and sort of turn any attempt to reassess Britain's past into an attack on, you know, the greatness of Britain. We also see on the other side, perhaps a sort of quite simplistic assessment of British history as it is only colonial history without any sort of sense of pride in it. So what you really get is this intensely polarized debate where very little meaningful discussion takes place. Many of us have wanted a rather better debate. And actually, insofar as there's been polling on it, you find a much more mature response from the public. So for instance, the public, when it came to statues, were very often thinking, very comfortable with any kind of slave owner, with anyone involved in the slave trade having their statue taken down. However, they were much more critical when someone had some sort of connection with the slave trade, for instance, in some cases their fathers were involved, but they were famous for another reason, for instance, for philosophy or for establishing an educational institution. So yes, it's there, but at the moment, just like everything in Britain, it is tied into this bruising Brexit culture war, which is about predominantly the past and the vision of what happens to Britain in the future. Can we stay with um, Britain for a bit, Ian? Because, so you're the, the British expert. And what I want to ask is, well, what Americans pick up and take away from British politics, not so much Brexit, but the whole Corbyn drama, because there were two specific lessons Americans learned from Corbyn, which I think were both wrong. So in... 2017, his surprisingly not awful showing was used by evidence of the sort of US proto-socialist left, which is my ideological milieu, as evidence that quote-unquote Bernie would have won. Now, that just seemed to me a really weak argument. The idea that a leader who at least superficially resembles Bernie lost an election is not great evidence that Bernie would have won. Conversely so, though, when 
Corbyn got decimated in 2019, the more sort of centrist part of the US political spectrum used this as evidence that, ah, you see, you run a lefty and you'll get absolutely slammed. That seemed a little too fast for me as well, because some of Corbyn's policies were quite popular. And the main reason he lost wasn't necessarily those policies, it was Brexit. But I I then thought just because the two extremes are wrong, that doesn't mean there's nothing to be learned here. What was the Corbyn failure about, in your view? And specifically, what is there that generalises to how, say, Democrats could oppose Trump? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, on a, on a couple of issues, it's impossible to generalize out to the US case. I mean, the first one, like you mentioned, is Brexit, which is essentially a debate that isn't repeated and isn't structurally repeated in the, in the kind of battle that you see in the US. You had one issue defining an entire political period where you have the governing party being able to monopolize one end of it to leave the EU side. And you had the remain in the EU side splintered over several parties. And also splintering the Labour support. About a third of Labour supporters were pro-Brexit. You just don't have that situation in the US. So it's not directly comparable on those lines. There's one other issue which makes it different as well, and that was the anti-Semitism issue. Now, this just simply would not go away. And the reason it would not go away was because there were very, very real problems of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party that were not being dealt with by the Corbyn leadership. And part of the reason that they weren't being dealt with is because they just simply couldn't conceive that this was an actual form of racism, of discrimination. It just seemed inconceivable to them. And in fact, was in many instances perpetuated by the leadership. Now, that poison meant that even people, I I count some of these people among my friends, who were politically very sympathetic to Corbyn himself, not just policy by policy, but Corbyn himself, found themselves leaving the Labour Party. In fact, I hardly knew anyone that remained in the Labour Party during that period. It got so poisonous. So none of that is comparable to what was happening in the States to to Bernie Sanders. There are two lessons, though, that you can take from Corbyn that I think are comparable and that are useful to the American left. The first one is about patriotism. And that's that if you're going to put forward a radical left position, you need to be able to speak the language of patriotism. Corbyn couldn't bring himself to do it. He couldn't sing the national anthem. He wasn't willing to. He showed absolutely no signs of being able to engage in political debate at that level. Now, it doesn't really matter whether there are lots of people watching him. And of course, many of my friends don't consider themselves patriotic. And that's fine. You have the right not to be patriotic. The reality of the situation is, unless you're able to talk in that way, you're not going to be able to take power in the country in which you're trying to win. You need to be able to demonstrate that you do actually like the country that you want to govern. And that doesn't seem an insane point of view to me, but it was something that Jeremy Corbyn seemed completely incapable of. The second one was competence. And this is what it was about more than any kind of policy. You look at the books coming out now about Corbyn's leadership, some of them by people very sympathetic towards his leadership, some of them by people more distant, sort of on the more sort of, you know, political journalistic side. They all come down to the same thing, which is just, Guy didn't know what he was doing. I mean, he didn't really know what he was doing when he went for the leadership. He didn't think he was going to get it. And when he got it, he wasn't really present. And you'd often hear that from Labour people around him, you know, sat trying to negotiate strategy over Brexit. They'd just say, it's kind of just like there's some clothes in the room, but there's no human being inside of them. He just wasn't really there. And intellectually, he wasn't present. Strategically, he wasn't present. He wasn't competent. And that came out eventually in the policies as well. So in the 2017 manifesto, kind of classic social democrat manifesto, I mean, left, but nothing, you know, if you put it 
you know, in Sweden, it would seem pretty bog standard mainstream sort of political affairs. I know that's always the euphemism for, for left. May I just interject or Germany? Because people always point to Scandinavia. but <laughs> They do. It's true. It's but, but Germany is the fourth largest economy in the world. And, you know, we have very strong social democratic sets of rights. Right. No, fair enough. So, look, I mean, in that manifesto, those policies were popular. In the 2019 one, partly because of a change of, of personnel behind the scenes, you had policies that were not very, very far left. They were mostly under control, but there were just so many of them. So, you know, you were eventually getting sort of nationalization of broadband and things like that. And, and they occasionally got quite sci-fi. The broadband proposal in particular, people were like, why are you nationalizing broadband? Like this, I feel okay paying 15 pounds a month for my broadband <laughs> subscription. I don't feel that this is a required project. And because of the sheer sort of density and velocity of center-left proposals, and they were no more than center-left, it eventually just broke and people didn't believe that any of this would take place. So the competence was there in the manner in which the project was conducted, but also in the policies themselves. And on those two issues, on patriotism and competence, I think those are universal rules that any, any sort of centre-left party across the world can take something from. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Let me try out a narrative on you, Ian, and then if David or Susan might want to add something to it as well. But to my mind, the analogy isn't so much to do with policy. I think it's definitely to do with competence in the Corbyn case. But the analogy between the sort of Sanders movement and the Corbyn movement is sort of rhetorical and ideological. And it gets sort of summarized under this sort of anti-establishment label. But what it really is, is a feeling that the system itself is corrupt and rotten, and in a sense, almost abominable to its core, and that we are defining ourselves against that. And I think in both cases, what they mistook was a general sort of apathy and cynicism about politics with a commitment to a much more specific ideological narrative. So if you ask people, do you hate both parties or are politicians useless or whatever, they'll go, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone likes to badmouth people in power. But then if you say, okay, so are you with me in saying in the case that some Sanders supporters would say that both Democrats and Republicans are part of a neoliberal shill globalist sellout elite that's a conspiracy against the workers, or in Corbyn's case, something quite similar, but maybe incorporating in Israel and empire. People go, um, yeah, that? I don't, yeah, I'm not really sure about that bit. And they sort of mistook that more general apathy to this idea that everyone had bought into their very specific theory of what was going wrong with the system when they just hadn't. That's a narrative that appeals to, I would say, particularly young people post-2008 crash who were maybe some status dissonance that they got college degrees and graduated into an economy that doesn't have a place for them. All very understandable. But th there's not a majority of voters in either country that really vibe with that everything about the system is rotten to the core. I don't know. Am I off track there? No, I think that's right. I mean, they mostly got inspired. 
I mean, you know what was really telling was watching what Corbyn supporters and guys around Corbyn in his office were saying the day after Trump got elected. Because you would have expected it, like anyone else on the sort of liberal left was in this state of just broken horror across but the world. But they saw the silver lining, didn't they? they? They were pretty chuffed. They weren't that unhappy that day. They were saying, look, this just proves everything's game at the moment. The system is shaking. You know, anyone putting forward like a really radical different proposition. They obviously didn't like Trump. They hated him. But that wasn't the point. Then it just showed there was an area where where parties that wanted to shake up the system could succeed. And they didn't see any reason that the left couldn't do it as well as the right. The trouble was they were very fond of pointing out how popular some of their ideas were, for instance, on rail nationalization. There's always been a majority in Britain for nationalizing railways. There even is amongst conservative voters. And they were saying, look, the whole neoliberal image has basically covered this up for years. But in fact, the public want nationalization. Very, very often true. What they weren't so keen on pointing out was there are many other issues that would be much less comfortable with that the public have always wanted, the return of capital punishment. Now, in Britain, I know that sounds crazy in America, but in Britain, that's considered way off the scale of the right, but has always had popular support in Britain for a very long time. So on that, they were much less keen to talk about it. And in the end, when it came down to it, the conversation around shifting of the system in Britain became a cultural one between metropolitan open you know areas which are predominantly quite center center left and the much more nativist right on brexit and in that conversation to be honest corbynism actually didn't have much to say and spent most of those years thinking i really want that conversation to go away and therefore was unable to take any kind of there's there's an analogy in the u.s where a, a certain justice democrats those sorts of people spent a lot of time saying these sorts of rural white economically disaffected regions they're the ones we really need to go after and they're our natural allies and they went after them in the 2018 midterms and were like naught for 16. and then the mainstream democrats were like white suburban women with college degrees who are put off by the increasing machismo and vileness of the other side of the culture war they're who we need to go after and just as a matter of political strategy, not who has the best policies, but just where the gettable votes are, the centrist Dems were correct. Like, they, they almost didn't want to have that conversation about the culture war. They wanted to have the conversation about the class struggle, but that wasn't the conversation we were having. Susan, you wanted to come in. That argument is still not settled for a couple of reasons. One has to do with, with the polls about the relative income and education of Trump's voters in 2016. We like to comfort ourselves by saying, you know, these were poor, uneducated uh, dopes who, you know, have had a hard time. And in fact, uh, the, the average income of Trump supporters was higher than those of Clinton supporters. And the educational level is astonishingly good. So that's a scary thought. There are an awful lot of people who are voting for Trump because he protects their bank accounts and their stock returns. The other thing that I think is not settled yet, and maybe we'll see an answer in this election, was the radical undervoting of young people in you know, 2016. And I even worried, I think Trump has done himself so much damage. I know a lot of parents, and I'm one of them, who had to put pressure on their, you know, kids in their 20s of one kind or another, because the kids were all out for Bernie, and they were absolutely uninterested in voting at all initially, because they felt they had to vote for Biden. 
And over and over, they hear from people, no, it's a vote against Trump. You don't have to, you know, you know all the arguments, I'm sure. So I, I think the mobilizing this very large, disaffected youth vote, you know, was at least as important as anything else. So this, that's a great point. And it's really interesting because a lot of the public polling right now we're seeing young voters express a likelihood of voting that is actually very similar to the rest of the electorate. And that would really right. be a sea change. And I, I think that I want to stay on the generation thing because that to me is one of the most important parallels between what's happening in the UK and the US and even Canada. All over the democratic world, there is an enormous youth revolt against conservatives. So the the splits on, on Brexit, the splits in the 2019 uh, UK general election, you know, young people were just orders of magnitude more likely to vote Labour. And similarly in Canada, like the youngest voters supported the New Democrat Party, uh, New Democratic Party at, at twice the rate of older voters. And in, in the US, there's an enormous generational split that's been going on for a very long time. And some of those voters are about to sort of age into power. And so the, the parallel with Bernie and, and Corbyn is really interesting. And I think that the, the language issue here is important because I think one of the reasons that Bernie was unable to win the Democratic primary, which is obviously a very system, a different system of choosing party leadership than, than in the UK. But the, one of the reasons he was unable to do that is that I don't think he was able to speak the language of older Democrats, right? Because there's a huge generational divide inside the Democratic Party too. I mean, everybody, I think, knows this implicitly. But yeah, the young, younger voters were, were heavy for, for Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. And I think one of Bernie's biggest strategic mistakes in particular was running against the Democratic Party, um, which yes. is you know, when you're trying to win the Democratic primary, um, you're alienating particularly older older African-American voters for whom the Democratic yes. Party was a long time ago, like the vehicle of their, of their deliverance from the apartheid system in the U.S. South. So I think if somebody on the left, like Bernie Sanders, is going to win a Democratic primary in 2024 or 2028, they have to still going to be a lot of those voters around and they have to do a better job of expanding their coalition beyond their youth base and, and reaching those older those older voters. We need an amalgam of Bernie and Warren, right? Warren showed the ability of a progressive platform to reach people who aren't necessarily both feet in on that to begin with. Bernie showed the ability to activate people who are, but you need some sort of hybrid of the two. That's my I take. put my money on AOC, frankly. She's, well, we shall see. She's going to do something, I think. Um, She's been old enough to run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that her on any Democratic ticket would have brought out, you know, 90% of the people under 35 in this country. Do you think we're going to see a Bernie or Bust thing again this time, David? My my perspective is we, we are, but it'll be much smaller, like at least half what it was last time. Yeah, I think I think it'll be more. I think it'll be more than less than half. I mean, one one issue is that the party is unified, even behind Biden, which the you know young voters didn't love. But the party is way more unified than it was in 2016. And more importantly, there there are not particularly credible or well known third party candidates running in this election. So both the Libertarian Party candidate and the Green Party candidate are complete unknowns. Whereas in 2016, you had Gary Johnson, who was a former Republican governor of, of New Mexico, who was really into legalizing weed. Um, and so that, that had some appeal to, to young folks who were disillusioned with, with Hillary Clinton. They were like, well, I'll, I'll, this guy seems stoned all the time. He seems great. Let's, let's vote for him. And so I just, I just don't think there's the same level of risk this year. Of course, there will be some people who don't come around, but I don't think it's going to be statistically meaningful or, or affect the election. Also, Trump was just assumed to lose by everyone in 2016. It was a much more hypothetical danger, whereas now, and I think a lot of people on the far left thought, one, he'll never win, 
two, it won't be that bad, and three, some sort of mysterious deus ex machina will mean he'll bring on the revolution, as Susan Sarandon said. And we've had him for four years. It has been that bad. We don't have the revolution. And it's like, that's just a much more compelling thing to vote against the actuality of evil rather than the possibility of it, you know? It's I mean, not only do we not have the, the revolution, we have Joe Biden and we have a Supreme Court about to overturn Roe v. Wade, right? So the revolution didn't come. We need to get rid of this guy. Yeah. It's also been worse even than those of us who were very afraid and willing to vote for basically anyone who would beat him. It was worse than anybody I know could could have imagined, as bad as we thought it could get. So, I've got one final question for me, and then we'll go to audience questions. Do we think this COVID thing has been an indictment on, I'm not just going to say conservatives, but reactionary cultural conservatives' ability to govern? UK, US, Brazil, all seem to have done gratuitously badly at handling this. I'm not sure it's a coincidence that the people who hate government the most value experts the least and want business deregulated the most have proved inept in a situation that requires the opposite. Or am I, Ian, am I being too hard here? There are counterexamples. Um, Orban hasn't had too bad a time, but most of sort of Central Europe um, locked down pretty quickly. It hasn't had too bad a COVID emergency. So there are counterexamples, but broadly, I agree with you. And I think there's a variety of elements to that. I mean, partly it is simplism, this idea that the world is not complicated, it's very simple, and that expertise is something to be shunned and to be treated with a kind of suspicion. Um, And you see that quite a bit now in the British example and in the American example. I think there's something else as well, which is um, that narrative of we are the representative of the people. And as the representative in power, there are no legitimate sources of opposition to us. So you see that, for instance, in the attacks from Trump and from both the Theresa May and the Boris Johnson government in the UK on the court system, on international institutions, whether it's the WTO or the EU, on the media, on Parliament's Congress. I mean, Boris Johnson, I mean, suspended Parliament illegally against its will. He took that so far. And you see then instances of that, for instance, in the treatment of local political power sources. You saw that under Bolsonaro in Brazil. You're seeing that right now this week in Britain against Andy Burnham, a Labour uh, local uh, mayor of Manchester. So in those cases, because the the nationalist governments tend to bunker down and treat anyone that doesn't agree with them or any kind of separate centre of power as a threat against the legitimacy of the people that they represent, they're very, very bad at hearing critical ideas. They're very, very bad at working consensually with the institutions and the local sources of power around them. And that tends to result in very, very bad outcomes. OK, let's let's go to audience questions, shall we? Um, I've got a few good ones jotted down here. And let's go fairly fast through these so we can get as many done as possible. I'll go to you first with this one, David. But if anyone else wants to chime in quickly, Katie asks how US voter suppression What's the sort of comparison between that and equivalent efforts in the UK or Germany? That's a that's a great question. I'm not necessarily an expert on on voting in the UK and Germany, but I do think that the that the US Republican Party is is definitely an outlier in the, in the democratic world and its determination to prevent people from voting who don't support them. I think it points to the way you're talking about conservative parties, uh, Toby, in their response to COVID. 
I think it's worth remembering that when we look at ideologically at the Republican Party in comparison to other conservative parties, particularly in Europe, it's a huge outlier. It's much further to the right on an ideological spectrum. And it's unique in its hostility to social spending in a way that, that uh, the European conservatives are not. And so, I, I, you know, some, some countries in Europe are struggling with, with a sort of decline, democratic decline, just as we are here in the U.S., but at least in my understanding, my best understanding of the UK and Germany, there are not these like really systematic, malicious efforts to uh, to undermine the ability of people to cast a ballot. Um, I'm happy to be corrected on that by my colleagues here. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Susan. Can I add to what David said about the far right nature of, of the Republicans? I have to explain to people that Bernie Sanders is quite far to the right of Angela Merkel, who is a center right politician. That is, no German voter, including a conservative, would accept the meager list of reforms that Bernie Sanders proposed. So I just want to agree with you and put an exclamation point behind that. The other thing to be said about German voting, first of all, it's very easy to vote by mail, but secondly, in-person voting is on a Sunday. And the blue laws here uh, for closing shops and things on Sundays are very strong. So that's one simple thing that could be done. A question for you, Susan. Um, Mike asks, are there any specific policy changes that were inflection points for Germany on their road to acknowledging and confronting their history? I mean, you've asked us to be short. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not not trying to sell books here, but, you know, they're long and complicated, and it really depends on which Germany you were talking about, whether you're talking about the East or the West which had entirely different histories. So if Mike is really interested in that question, learning from the Germans is out in paperback. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, it's just, I'll, I'll, ta- I'll use up everybody else's time if I try to answer that question in a responsible way. I've got a bunch on the prospects of electoral reform in a few different contexts. Let's actually start with the UK on this one. Ian, is there any possibility of the UK moving to a proportional representation system? Yeah, better than usual, which is not great. And so <laughs> there's an avenue, I think, for a couple of reasons. First one is Keir Starmer, the new leader of the Labour Party, is open to the idea. But remember, we've been here before. We heard the same thing from Tony Blair um, back when he was opposition Labour leader. When he got into power, he thought, well, seeing as the system gave me a big majority and I get to do whatever the hell I like now without coalition, I might just keep it the way that it is. Keir Starmer currently does seem quite open to it. Um, There is something that makes it slightly different for him than it will be for others, and that is the prospect of Scottish independence. Scottish independence takes away a massive rump of left-wing votes. So if Scottish independence happens, it's hard to see how you get a left-wing government in England ever again kind of a thing. And so that's making left-wing leaders like uh, Keir Starmer think, okay, well, might be time for electoral reform because that might be the only way that we actually manage to get ourselves into a situation where we will be able to have left-wing governments in future. So the chances of it are very, very bad indeed, but they are nevertheless better than they have been for some time. Question for David specifically about the Electoral College. What is the mechanism by which we would end that? So there's two ways, right? One is you have to amend the U.S. Constitution, which is functionally impossible in, in the current context of, of partisanship in this country, because one of our two political parties believes that it benefits from the Electoral College, even though it has not actually consistently benefited. 
like if, if this was going to go wrong in 2004, 2008 or 2012, it would have been the Democrat who took office with a minority of the popular vote. But Republicans are simply not going to agree to, to, to amend the Constitution to eliminate the, the Electoral College. So the only path available is something called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which is an agreement between states to award their electors to the winner of the national popular vote, no matter what happens in their own state. To be honest with you, we're nowhere near getting enough states to pass that to get to 270, which is the magic number. Even if we were, frankly, I think it would end up in court in front of the very Supreme Court <laughs> that is now, you know, is, is about to be a six to three conservative court. So I, I don't want to be overly pessimistic, but I think it's pretty unlikely that the Electoral College is going anywhere anytime soon. Although I will say one thing that, that's really heartening to me about the whole question of electoral reform in the U.S. is that young people in particular are, are looking at, at our electoral system and, and thinking like, well, this is very dumb. You know, like, why do we do it like this? Why does the Electoral College exist? Why do we have gerrymandering? What, you know, why don't we have uh, electoral systems that reflect the, the, the will of the electorate? And so uh, I, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I do think that there is a reckoning coming for U.S. political institutions that do not reflect the will of, of a majority of the electorate over and over again. Let's just do this one by a show of hands. Who thinks Australian-style compulsory voting would have a net positive effect in the U.S. and U.K.? Only me? Afraid so, mate. I mean... <laughs> Sorry to be Today, a national holiday, right, and stopping gerrymandering would, it seems to me, um, solve a huge number of problems, you know, without the word compulsory. Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, people I mean, have the right not to be interested in politics. And if they don't want to, I don't see that the state has any reason to force them to be interested. I, I, morally, I, I can't understand the justification for those moves. I've, even though most of my sort of allies on the liberal left here are very, very keen on compulsory voting. They love the Australian example. I, I mean, I do, you, do you support compulsory service on a jury? I don't really think that these things are applicable, but nevertheless, even there, I'm not entirely, I wouldn't object to someone saying that they don't necessarily want to do it. It doesn't seem to me the right way to go. And I also, for what it's worth, don't think the outcomes would be any better. The idea should be facilitating voting, but forcing voting seems to me a very different moral proposition. Yeah, I think so too. Well, I mean, one end of the political spectrum in the United States is like losing its mind of the prospect of eliminating supermajority voting requirements in the, in the Senate, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that like imposing compulsory voting in the US would cause just uh just an earthquake of of resentment and like you know this you can't it's like a, a attack on my freedom and um i just think the right would lose its mind and i don't think it would really deliver the kind of benefits that people think it would because a large uh, portion of the people who do not vote in the united states are white voters without a college degree so i think the idea that it would automatically benefit um democrats is not not necessarily borne out i know you weren't asking specifically about democrats I, I was, I guess I was approaching it more from a political philosophy point of view, which is my thing, than a consequential point of view. I agree if you're going to spend that capital somewhere, spend it doing something about the Senate or the Supreme Court, right? I just, I guess I'm more comfortable with apparently all of you in there being mandatory participation in making society function, be that paying taxes or serving on a jury or yes, voting or... We need to go down all that. Um, I think voting deserves to be an exception. I, I would agree with you about jury, jury duty and taxes. But I, I think because of what Ian said, people have the right to say, 
I'm not interested. I, I, I mean, it takes away the idea that voting is a privilege, that people have died in recent historical memory to preserve, to make it compulsory. And I think it should remain a privilege, but one that just should be made much, much easier than it is in the US. Would your concerns be assuaged by an option on the ballot to simply indicate none of the above, but you just have to fill in a ballot? Hmm. It would help. But, but honestly, I don't... But Look, you guys know much more about American history and American politics than I do, but my understanding and having read a little bit about this is that there is a very long history in America of trying to find ways of stopping people from voting when we don't like what the outcomes are going to be. It seems to me like that is the problem to be solved. When I look at long queues of people waiting hours to vote in America, that seems an absolute abomination to me. And that seems the place to focus the efforts rather than the sort of more radical ideas that are likely to upset an awful lot of people, including me. Let's take... One more. This one challenging some of the stuff uh, me and you, I think, said, David, saying essentially, why are we saying that Bernie voters should have to court the Democratic Party? Surely the Democratic Party should be having to court Bernie voters, given that that's where most of their votes are coming from. Actually, can I answer a question? Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with the sentiment of the question. I do disagree with the idea that Bernie is the silent majority. I think most people who don't vote do so through a much more general apathy or cynicism. I think the specific ideologically bought in Bernie coalition is about 10, 15 million people. But I think to a degree the party is. I think Biden's taken the responsibility of actually building a coalition across a lot of the different groups of the party quite seriously. He's put forward a lot of policy proposals on student debt, environment, whatever, that are specifically designed to market himself to that group. You haven't got everything you want. You haven't got Medicare for all, for instance. You've got something that looks like the Green New Deal, but apparently we're calling it something different. But that's kind of what a compromise is. Like, everyone's a little bit unhappy. So to answer your question, yes, the Democratic Party should be courting those voters. Um, David, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, sure. My favorite movie in the world is called Big Night. And it's about a, it's about a, a, an owner of an Italian gourmet restaurant at the Jersey Shore in the 50s. And he's getting, he's getting clobbered by this terrible Italian restaurant down the street. Um, at one, one point, one of the main characters says, first, you have to give the people what they want, and then you can give them what you want. Okay. And I think like to run the gauntlet of a Democratic primary, which is, which is the people that turn out for Democratic primaries are Democratic partisans, the people that like the Democratic Party. And so it's incumbent on Bernie Sanders and anybody that wants to be the standard bearer of the left, if they want to win that primary, and I would like them to win that primary, I think Bernie would have done just fine in the general election here, mm-hmm. is that they have to do the work of appealing to the, to the people in the Democratic Party who are, st- are still just more likely to turn out and vote in those primaries than, than Bernie Sanders' supporters. I completely agree with you that Joe Biden needs to do some of the hard work um, of reaching out to younger voters. I think it would be an unalloyed good if the Democratic Party could reorient itself a little bit more to, to reach those voters, to, to listen to their concerns, to put more of them into power, right? Like the leadership in the, in the Democratic Party is like 9,000 years old. And, uh, and it's not good for, for the party. It's not good for appealing to, to younger voters. So I, I agree with the sentiment. And of course, I would like to see that. But I do think that the, you know if we have another competitive primary, and people like me want to see the, the progressive candidate win, that candidate still needs to be able to speak the language and make the appeals to older voters in addition to their core supporters among younger voters. 
Well, let's end on this one on the same topic, and maybe Susan Ian wants to get in on it as well, but it follows on quite nicely from it. Do you believe that if the Democratic Party secures control of the presidency and the Congress, a failure to enact progressive policies by 2022 or 2024 may hasten the decline of American democracy? Yeah, I think this is a real danger that we get a Democratic presidency, and even with the Congress, they become frustrated by all of the institutional forces that have frustrated our last few democratic presidencies. And a lot of people look at that and say, there is no bloody point to any of this and not correctly place the blame on Republicans for being nihilists, but place it on Democrats for being corrupt or not caring enough. I'm not sure that would like in itself bring about the end of American democracy. But I think that is a real danger. And I think Democrats, if they do win, are going to have to, they, they, it will be in their own interest to deliver the goods. Um, I'll pause if anyone else wants to get in on that. Yeah, I, I actually think all the signs are going in the other direction if the election is fair and if we can get control of Congress. Yeah, because um, a couple of things have changed. First of all, you have something like two thirds of Americans agreeing that climate change is a major emergency. And that's a huge difference. Okay, And you also have had people questioning our, you know, primitive social system in the wake of COVID. And I think those two, uh, you know, very clear disasters from outside have brought home to Americans the absolute need for serious changes. Plus, I think people are fired up and ready to go because of the disastrous current administration. I think if the only thing, I mean, the, the only possibly good thing I can see from this administration is that it really has turned a majority of the electorate, even without the generational change, David, which I agree is very important, uh, turned it to the left. I mean, there's there's a loathing of the kinds of policies that the Republicans have been supporting because they're personified by the White House. If they came wrapped in a better package, I think people would be less revolted. So I'm more hopeful. David? Sure. I mean, I think it's important not to get complacent. I mean, I remember back in 2010, you know, two, two years after Democrats won power and the Republican Party had just overseen like the worst economic catastrophe in 50 years and had, had spent like $3 trillion fighting a, a couple of idiotic wars in the Middle East. And they were returned to power two years later. And so I think it's important to remember that, that you know, the electorate has a short memory in this country, for better or for worse, and that they will be perfectly willing to forgive the Republican Party in 2022 in 2024, if they put the right kind of person forward instead of another sort of like Trump clone, right? So I think it's, I've always, I've been saying for a long time, one of the top priorities of the of a democratic government is to reform the electoral system so that they do not lose elections that they should have won. And that is something that can reinforce their ability to make policy and give them more than 18 months in power. So yeah, I absolutely agree with, with the person who, who asked this question. It's really, really important to act early, act decisively, pass not just policies, but reforms to, to the system itself. Because you, in American politics, you have 18 months. You know, you have 18 months before the midterms get into full swing. And if you waste six of those months, you know, trying fruitless negotiations with Republicans or something, yeah, they will be swept out of power in, in 2022. Um, and it's, a, it's a huge danger, and I think it would lead to a more democratic decline. Do we think they will? And I ask because I really don't 
know. It's a weird thing to be saying, will Biden be the one to do court expansion, for instance? Because you wouldn't have thought that a year ago, but here we are talking about it. And it's almost like, on the one hand, Biden's an institutionalist and doesn't want to change institutions. At the other point, if you want to save the institutions, you're going to have to change them because we're either going to get locked into a system that turns a narrow Republican minority into a majority every time, or we're going to get locked into a system that actually reflects majority will. And one of those outcomes is coming in a few cycles, I think. Uh, I do philosophy, not prophecy. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't think anyone can claim prophecy. I guess my question to David is, do you see Biden pulling the trigger on, let's just narrow it down to filibuster, adding states and court, some sort of court reform? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I can't see the future. I do think on court expansion, Biden is more radical on the courts than I think people give him credit for. He might not want to say it in public, but he voted against Clarence Thomas. He voted against Samuel Alito. And he voted against John Roberts, who was a relatively uncontroversial pick for the Supreme Court. He's been doing this court stuff since the 80s. I mean, and people in the Senate have these incredibly long memories. And so some of what's happening is like revenge for what happened to Robert Bork in 1987. And so Biden has that kind of long memory. I think he's very angry about all of this stuff. He's announced that he's going to form some sort of commission to study the problem. My feeling is that the Supreme Court has to do something really terrible and transgressive for him to actually pull the trigger on it. And that might not happen in his first two years. And so I worry that the opportunity to enlarge the court might pass without him actually um, having the power to do it. My feeling is that Roberts is smart enough to delay anything that would provoke that retaliation. But some of the other people on the court are not, and they might not need Roberts to do it. Well, some of the other people on the court are not that smart. And also the Republican Party is not that smart. Like if they they (laughs) wanted to forestall court expansion, all they had to do is not confirm Barrett. To the, all they had to do was not fill this seat, right? And even if they lost the election, they could have this 5-4 majority for the next 10 years, probably, because Thomas and Alito are not that old. And if they live as long as, as Ginsburg does, they'll be on the court until 2035. So I think it's, I think it's a, a pretty insane gambit for them to be filling this seat right now, and I think it will provoke a countermeasure. Whether they have the votes in the Senate, I don't know. Whether Biden would sign it, I don't know, but I know that he is interested in reform. The other stuff I think is I'm pretty confident will happen. Like we're going to do some reform of voting rights in HR1, which is a bill that's already been passed by the House, a bill to, to make DCS state has already passed the House. I think that Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico statehood would be a pretty easy sell if the island itself has another referendum that, that gives us a clear result and a clear desire. But I do worry that Democrats will not address the superstructural issues that allow Republicans to exert power through the court system um, and through other minoritarian features of, of American democracy. That could thwart all of this stuff. You could pass all of these things, but it could, it could end up getting Calvin Ball on the courts for 10 years. And so to me, the, the court stuff is just as important as anything else is. And I, I actually have no idea <laughs> um, whether they'll actually go through with it. Okay. We've just got a whole bunch more questions, but I think we, we should wrap because we've just run 10 minutes over. Let's end with this. Are we all watching the election? And what are you doing? What would you recommend people do to get through it? I will be for my sins. And I'm nervous as all hell. I don't have any great tips for anyone. I use whiskey. <laughs> I really can't stress that enough. Like, I, love whiskey. I always like to say, you know, uh, whiskey, I, I'm gin myself, but, but yes. And, uh, you know, 
hope for the best and work for the best, but have a psychological plan for the worst, because I personally did not have a psychological plan for the worst in 2016. Um, and it took me a little while to regain my footing just in, in the, the sheer shock of it. I will not be that shocked this time. I'll be shocked because the polls would have been so wrong, but I will not. I will no longer be shocked that this is possible in the United States, and, and that might actually be helpful. <laughs> and so, you know, do everything that you can to participate and to persuade and, and to do the work of, of elections. But be ready for, you know, be ready for it to go the other way, because it might. I find myself, and I know a lot of Americans who feel the same way, who feel incapable of thinking beyond the month of November. Um, that is really incapable of planning for the worst, because I think should the worst come to the worst, it will be so much worse than it was in 2016. And the outcomes, I know lots of people who are inquiring about European citizenship. I have to tell them you cannot escape this. The United States still is powerful enough to wreak havoc on the world, and it has been doing so for the last four years. So I, I just, I, I, I don't know about planning for the worst of other people are better at it than I am. But I, I, I also heard Nancy Pelosi refuse to answer that question, whether she had a plan B. And I really get it. I would say, you know, your spirit of choice. I, I mean, I'm going to be doing, I'm, you know, trying to explain the election to the German media a bit is what I'm going to be doing that evening. And, at, you know, talking about it is going to distract me, I think, from watching it. David, me and you do something and whine on about the courts all evening. <laughs> I'm totally on board for that. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Um, <laughs> Jose and Peggy, who've been giving us a lot of questions, state that they personally recommend rum as an alternative. Um, yeah. that all of you are wrong. The correct answer is whiskey, but sure. Yeah. And, and with Ian, so we've got, a, we've got a tie there. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Uh, thank you, Ian. Cheers, mate. And thanks, Susan. It was a pleasure. I'm Toby Buckle, and uh, yeah, thank you everyone for watching. This was a blast. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>